fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Joe Goldberg is here to help us. I'm here for you, Al. This might be my last one of the season, so if I don't talk to you, uh, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and Happy Hanukkah, and all, and all the rest. Yeah, I guess it's getting close to that. You know, I don't even think about it. This is the last week of recording, so um, yeah, uh, this is this is almost it. We're almost done. I feel pretty honored. Last one of the year. You should be. You are You are uh, almost yet yeah, to be like, you're, besides the Christmas shows, you're like show number... 199 for the year wow i snuck in i snuck in yeah 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 that's that now this is this is the great tara moss incredible writer australian canadian writer has done some great books and we're we're truly honored to have you on because you've done so much and um and you started back in the day you know 1999 or something you started publishing books correct that's right 1999 so um not yesterday. Um, <laughs> no. It's quite surreal, actually. Uh, and even seeing the changes in the publishing uh, world over the last couple of decades have really been something. So I feel pretty privileged, first of all, to be on here with you, Alan. Thank you so much. And Joe, thank you. Um, and also just to be published, you know, to be able to have that support from readers and publishers for so long has been you know, an amazing lifelong dream come true for for young tara that's for sure yeah you know and, and that's something that i find particularly interesting is because 1999 we really didn't have this uh amazon world and and this self-publishing world and we didn't have a lot of things that are just taken for granted these days so when you're doing writing and you want to be published in 1999, you had to go through kind of a more of a, the old term process. Did you even, did you even have to type up the manuscript and send it in type thing? I had to type a physical manuscript. Indeed. <laughs> I needed to have copies and there had to be, you know, particular margins and you couldn't have it double sided and all, you know, there were all of these very specific um, requirements for the physical home and the thing that really strikes me now as well that was that editing was so odd because as you got closer to the book going to the printers you would get set sent the typeset pages that were about two feet across and it would go in a courier envelope and arrive wherever I was I was often on the road and traveling and this massive package would arrive that's at least like two feet across, weighs a couple of kilos, and it would be the typeset pages. I mean, now it's done electronically, 
and we have so many you know, <laughs> emails and back and forth. But yeah, that was it was couriers arriving, gigantic pages of um, edited manuscript. So definitely a blast from the past to talk about that. But that's how it was done in those days. Well, why did you start writing back in 1999? Well, various careers. So. Yeah, look, I, I was writing since I was a kid, um, for better or worse. <laughs> uh, I was um, obsessed with Stephen King uh, back in the 80s. Like, you know, all people with good taste were obsessed with Stephen King in the 80s, particularly. And when I was 10 years old, I wrote a little gory novelette, I'll call it, uh, called Black and White Doom. And it was written on loose leaf paper with little, like, ghoulish cartoons in the corner that I did with my pen. And it featured the classmates of the school I was going to who were asking to be written in and killed off. <laughs> and that was like fellow 10-year-olds. It was like choose your own adventure story, but choose your own murder, basically, was, was how that was playing out. And that was the beginning for me, my first reading audience at age 10. So when I published my first book, uh, Fetish, it was 1999. I was 25. I'd been writing that for a few years at that stage. And that was my launch into being a published author. But I'd been, um, you know, wanting to be published and been a writer for a long time before then. Wow. Did you have the, when you did that, when you did Fetish, did you have the courage to do it at the time? Or you, or you were just jumping at the bit and you just wanted it out there? You didn't care what anybody thought? I was definitely not that confident. I, I did not have the confidence of, well, I guess a lot of writers don't. We don't we're not a very confident bunch, no. actually. When, when, um, when you think about it, we tend to be fairly neurotic and yeah. <laughs> we're a strange group, oh, yeah. right? Um, Absolutely. I was definitely definitely an oddball, and um, there was a short story contest uh, called the Scarlet Stiletto Awards that I could enter, and it was judged blind. So they would remove the, the author's name from the manuscript. It was a short story, and I wrote one I called Psycho Magnet, where a woman sort of like turns the t tables on a, a killer who's following her, and we're, we're sure she's going to get killed, and... The tables get turned. I'm, I can I can give that away because the story is pretty old now. But um, I won that short story contest, and I realized really in hindsight that I had I put myself forward for that. I felt like that was a possible first step because my name wouldn't be on it. Like if it was as terrible as I feared it was, I'd never have to hear about it again. You know, and, and this is the days before social media and stuff. It's like no one would know. It was just like, just sort of quietly sticking this in the post because it was a physical manuscript again. And when I won that short story award, that's how I got the interest of publishers. I got the, you know, got my first agent. They asked me what else I was working on. And I was writing fetish, you know, in my spare time uh, and said, well, actually, there's a novel I'm writing. And, and suddenly I was like, well, I better get on with that, you know, because I was only partway through it. Suddenly I had interest. So... I was very fortunate to have that opportunity, but I'm acutely aware that it was um, a real lack of confidence that had prevented me from showing my work to anyone under my own name up up until that, you know, after the winning that award. Yeah, yeah, it's funny how that is. And and but do you find that that's changed much now? Even though you've got a huge um, history of of now writing and and 
having successes and doing all sorts of things and you're more seasoned now when you do you still have that quivering stomach when you're about to release a book oh alan yes (laughs) yeah (laughs) in fact this morning i was just thinking of how terrible i am as a writer and how i have no idea how to write a novel and i'm writing my 15th and i have to keep reminding myself that i know what i'm doing not all the time not every day when it flows it's just the most wonderful kind of surge of power that that comes through me because you know we've all i hope had those days as writers where it flows and you're really feeling it you don't even know where it comes from it's just a it's just a beautiful thing and you live for those days of writing but they're not always like that so this morning i had the laptop open slightly different um device than what i was working with back in 1999 and i was thinking oh how am i going to do this you know how course I've done it before but you always have to kind of relearn how to write I think because every book is different every page is different every writing day is different so I'm afraid I haven't quite cured myself yet of that lack of confidence I don't know what we ever do really because <laughs> I well I find the same thing it was just yesterday because I'm doing a couple of projects and when I just opened up uh, the computer and I started doing something it was just, oh my God, I'm useless. I'm, <laughs> why am I even bothering? I'm a terrible writer. Forget it. You know what I mean? Like you just have that. And I, I just closed the lid on the computer and thought, well, time to go to work on the radio program then. <laughs> That's right. You want to like, just put it away for now. Let's just change the mindset. Cause I think so much of writing actually is a kind of psychological battle. I'd love to believe that it shouldn't be, but every writer I've spoken to has some version of this. So it seems to be part and parcel of the creative process. I think it might be that way for, for artists, for, you know, songwriters, for other people who create. You're just looking for that inspiration and it hits. When it hits, it's incredible, but it's not like every hour of every writing day you're being hit with this incredible inspiration. There's a lot of times where you wonder when it's going to come. Yeah. I think that um, uh, for me, what I found is um, I've kind of accepted, I know my weaknesses. You know, when I grew up on the spectrum and in the 60s, that was not very, not great in Canada or the U.S. because it was more of you're being a bad child. You're not speaking, you're not, you know, socializing, you're not following a lot of the rules. So they, they kind of didn't do as much as they do today. Mm -hmm. But I found that I, even on radio, I've learned kind of what I need in order to get the job done correctly. And I think that's the same in writing. Um, You kind of learn what it takes to get yourself to do what you want to do or need to do to get the book complete. And I wonder if it's the same for someone like you, who's more normal. <laughs> I would call myself very normal. Yeah. Well, you know, I had to, you know, I had to say that I didn't know <laughs> to say, you know, normal. Yeah. I, um, I, I struggle with stuff like fatigue. I've got, um, CRPS, which is a pain condition. And, you know, it's again, different. It's just another type of difference. Everybody's got all these different, uh, quirks and, and differences. And hopefully they make us, I don't know, they make us more interesting in a way or give us a slightly different perspective. 
so for me, I, I kind of work on, you know, what's the right setting and timing? When, when am I going to have the burst of energy? When is the inspiration most likely to come? And what do I need to put myself in, in the place of my characters and to, and the character that is location? Uh, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty heavy on the detail. Uh, I, I hear this a lot from readers who enjoy it or reviewers who sometimes don't. Um, I love detail. I want to like see everything and feel and touch everything. So putting myself in the physical locations I'll be writing about is one of the ways I know that I can make the work happen. You know, it's, it's part of what puts the fire under me and makes me feel like you know, I'm there and I can just write it out onto the page. Even though it's fiction, I need the uh, locations to be uh, real. Uh, so I was very lucky just to be in Italy recently. I got back from Naples a few days ago and what a town, just extraordinary. Jealous, jealous, oh. jealous here. And, and you know, I have never been there, uh, Joe, before this, this past couple of weeks. It was extraordinary. That's one of the reasons I think one of the things I live for in the books is kind of to learn about a new place and learn about just the minutia of the, the culture and the history. It's a snapshot. You can't learn everything, but just being um, thrown into that is always so inspiring for me. So I've come back with all of these scenes in my head and scenes I had planned before doing that research trip that are now just vivid and alive. And like you said, Alan, you find ways to work, you find what you need. And for me, the locations are one of the things I need. With The Ghosts of Paris, the latest book, and the one before that, The War Widow, because they are set historically, I'm getting to locations that have to have been around then and getting access. And I wanna, I wanna like see the tiles, I wanna touch the walls, I wanna, I want to go into the crypt, you know, literally. And um, I was really lucky to be able to do that recently in Naples. And I know that's a, you know, gives my work such a boost. Well, I was going to ask that. You write historical fiction. So how do you use those old characters, living history, to bring them alive in stories today? Yeah, for me, I find that there's a kind of like a family of characters that are my sent because it's an ongoing series is it that, that that familiar little family of characters that are built on an amalgam of people from the time and people i know and people i'm imagining they they take on their own lives but they have to be placed in a location which is again like another character in the book to me and that requires getting on the ground learning about the history and what was happening at the time so you know, Italy went through such a massive um, change. You know, Mussolini was out. They were throwing fascist statues down into the underground to smash them and get them out of their um, way. Just a huge change in, in the lifestyle and really tough uh, poverty and post-war um, experiences for people. Um, you know, if you watch The Bicycle Thief or you look into the, the history of the time, you can really get a taste of that. So. That just really comes alive, and I find that when you take your characters, your beloved characters, and put them into that setting, that's when you know the magic happens. Um, and I like to always see a link between. Well, I think there is a link. I don't have to see it; it it's there, regardless. There's the link between the past and the now. We got here through history, didn't we? we we're not arriving out of nothing, 
and what you see when you do historical, or what, for me, what I love about doing historical mystery or noir or hard-boiled or whatever we're going to call it, is that we're getting that sense of like where we came from. We're seeing how the experiences of the characters then still, you know, those experiences reverberate now through families, through situations, through, um, you know, the social and cultural changes that we're still going through. No, I'd say, because I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, because in my college classes, I say um, everything's connected. Yes. Right? Nothing just appeared for you. Right? If you want to use uh, virtual reality, that's a, that's a view master and a 3D stereograph from the 1800s. They're directly related. So understand, I call it living history. And that's what you do. But why did you pick the 40s? What was it about the 40s that made you say, that's my time in the past? Well, one of these things, and I know your listeners can't see this, but I'm, I'm showing you a picture of my Oma. Um, she's an example of why it's got to be the 40s. There's, there's um, an image of her riding a bicycle in the 1940s in Holland. Um, and I grew up on their stories from World War II. I chose to write these books in an immediate post-war setting because I feel like there's a lot of sort of war books about the war and the big players, the big politics of the time and so on. But I wanted to look at the aftermath. And when I think of my Oma and Opa in the 1940s, the Nazi occupation, how the Nazis came and took my Opa away because he was, you know, an able-bodied man, as they called it, put him to work in a, a munitions factory as a slave, slave laborer. And my Oma, because he was a baker by trade, she would smuggle sugar and flour in the hollows of that bicycle, in that photograph, and she would ride it past a bunch of Nazi checkpoints all across the Netherlands, going to Berlin, where this munitions factory was, so she could deliver those smuggled ingredients to my opa. He used those to bake bread in the munitions ovens next to the bombs to bribe the foreman, the German foreman. He was successful, finally. The guy liked his bread so much. Just imagine what it was like in the 40s that it was possible to bake bread in a munitions oven and have someone go, God, this is the best thing I've tasted in ages. The bomb. You know? And, yeah, exactly, and he got a day pass, and that's how he escaped the Nazis. That's probably why he, he lived to be till his 90s. And it's those stories of resilience, that the dynamism and resilience that we see from the stories of the time that really inspired me. And so that's why I chose the 1940s. That in my obsession with Raymond Chandler, um, with kind of pulp uh, fiction and noir, with hard-boiled with those hard-boiled dames, you know, I, I just, I love the fast-talking people of action in those stories, and I wanted to do my own take on it. Yeah. I've been listening to a lot of the Raymond Chandler lately. Um, interesting stuff. Um, now, I, I, one, one, one of my points is I, that I see is what I find very important, too, also about um, giving the details of of the location and um, what was going on, like just some of the experiences you just, you just talked about. I think that's really important um, because so many people in today's society um, and the social climate, they don't understand what it was like during that time. 
you know, and I think that it puts it more, it puts your characters more into real context than, than if you didn't have it in the book. I agree. And, and honestly, I, when you talk about social climate and I, um, I think about the times we're living through and it is such a different perspective, a different pace. And having written a contemporary crime fiction series where there was my main character, Mac Vanderwall, and there was, you know, DNA and forensics and all that kind of, you know, serial killer profiling, all that type of stuff going on. It's really nice to go backwards um, into our history a little bit where people did not have a mobile phone. They had to find other ways to get information. They had to find other ways to navigate things. And I think it's just kind of refreshing to read that. It's not better or worse, in my opinion. It's just a really interesting, evocative time to place yourself in. And again, those parallels to today, we don't arrive out of nothing. We see this huge part of our history and how it's impacted lives, a long shadow of war, that, you know, there's fewer and fewer living um, participants from, from those wars, but we're still impacted by all that. And as a writer, it's just really fun to go back in time and know that it's not going to be just a matter of them going like, oh, I'll just give them a call and see if they're okay. You know, as a mystery writer, it's so <laughs> delightful to be able to, you know, throw out those, those regular things that you do and think, now what would they do? How do you survive this? I mean, my, my Oma would be listening to secret, you know, radio messages on a, you know, uh, some revolutionary group that were putting out messages on a, a, a contraband radio frequency. It's, it's, it's just like a completely different way of, of doing things. And now we'd think, well, obviously, I would give them a text, see if they're up. Yeah. Well, they just, we just take so much for granted yes. of what, you know, just go out and buy your loaf of bread, just go do yeah. the, the rationing and all the things that right. you, you bring into the story. It's just a complete surprise. And someone that's younger than, than us uh, would have no clue. So I think it's fascinating. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I think the, um, the rationing and, you know, needing to have a coupon for a bit of fabric so you can clothe yourself and thinking about what that loaf of bread meant to my opa or to that foreman, that that loaf of bread would have been enough to make him go, sure, I'll give you a day pass. It's going to save your life, you know? It really wasn't that long ago. And it's not that long ago. That's right. You know, I was born 20, 15 years after the war. My, in, my, in my life, that would have been the roaring 20s. Today, at, today, if you go back that time, it's the roaring 20s. Now you go back, it's World War II. So it's... So it's unbelievable this stuff happened in a year. And that's what you were trying to capture. I, yeah. I, I read, I feel, in your yes. historical fiction books. What did you find differently when you were writing the contemporary books thematically versus the historical fiction books thematically that everything's sort of connected? Writing contemporary was interesting because I was always trying to look for what was the latest, like what's the newest thing that they would use, because that would be exciting as a writer and a reader. So I was looking at that time, it seems not so new now, but, you know, I went to the FBI Academy at Quantico and, and met with profilers, and it was like they were trying to, to you know, unpick the minds of serial killers. You know, that was what was happening in the 90s and the early 2000s. Um, you know, reading um, uh, Patricia Cornwell, and, you know, you've got 
Thomas Harris and Silence of Lambs. That was a kind of moment that was happening, and I, I was very influenced by that. And learning so much about psychology, like that was, you know, a, a detection tool. You know, we, we know that's rather imperfect, but it was a time of development of that sort of uh, way of thinking. Um, this is just so different because you're you're looking at a lot of things that are more. Let me put it more. Um, I don't know, it's more like tangible and physical, you know, the things that people are experiencing. It was very psychological, the work from the 90s, um, I think. And that stuff when you're looking at the 40s, it's it's really getting it's getting down and dirty. I mean, as we were saying, like a loaf of bread, you know, a, a, a gun, a, a single coat. You know, these were kind of the objects, the things that were part of the story in a way. Whereas in the 90s, there was a lot of thinking, a lot of talking, a lot of, you know, um, doing detection work from a distance. And then there would be some scene where it all, you know, it all came crashing together. And, and that was always the most fun part because I love some action. Um, I guess in the 1940s for me, there's a little bit of a, there's a different type of grittiness. I don't know. Readers will be able to tell me if they agree. Possibly not. But that's the feeling for me right now in, in the writing is that there's a real physicality to, um, to the period when I dropped my characters into the 40s. Well, you're, reading, you're writing about lives lived. Yes. As opposed to contemporary where people are living life. Yeah. Which is a slightly different angle. Yeah, and the weight that's put on a cup of tea or a bit of butter or, you know, the outfit that, say, Billy Walker, my PI character, what she's wearing to, to blend in when she goes into that high end of town you know, where she saved that piece of silk so she could sew that outfit together to look like she belonged in that room. You know, these are things we take completely for granted, but they matter. And they mattered in Chandler's work, too. If you look at Philip Marlowe, he had a keen eye for clothing details, every, details of everything. But he looked at, you know, collar and cuff, the shoe, because of what it said about the character what it said about their social status, what their intentions were, who they're trying to be. And those are things I can do with the War Widow and the Ghosts of Paris. And they just weren't as relevant in the contemporary series because clothing has become a completely different thing for the modern day, if you will. Right, right. And, and stand, your, your stance of what you're wearing is not as important. Yeah, and it's going to change all the time, right? You know, yeah, yeah. Maybe not for me in real life, but for most people, there's a huge turnover for clothing. I, I, I actually wear some of the 1940s clothes, which I quite enjoy. Yeah. Um, you know, that's kind of, that's quite fun. And they're made incredibly well. So they'll probably last another 75 years again. But uh, I know that's not the norm. Well, you know, but I, I do that too. I'm, I'm, I get into older clothing myself. I'm really into that. I think I get mesmerized by it that once in a while you see this, old film from something someone just filming something going on in a street you know in 1941 you know kids playing and people walking and doing their thing i'm mesmerized by those you could just sit there and watch them uh for hours just to see how people lived and acted and what they were doing in their day um it's something real you know yeah. I, it's a little bit more real in in Europe, or at least from the recent trip as well, um, I did research in some areas that uh, are not wealthy areas. And if you look at the people living their lives, the Italians, 
still there's a degree to which they're living in ways that do hark back to several decades ago. You know, it's someone that is on their moped in their one suit that they have, you know, carrying a tray of espressos and somehow navigating the cobblestones. I don't even know how that <laughs> stuff is possible, but it's, you know, it reminds me of my opa in his one suit. You know, he didn't, he didn't get around in track pants. I'm, I wear them, of course, but you know, he, he had his one suit, he had his, his thing, and you're still, still seeing in a lot of districts, um, if it's not the wealthy areas, um, that there's a way in which people present themselves that's sort of similar to those old films. And that was pretty, pretty cool for me to, to just to soak up. I was really privileged to see that. Now, you know, your, your main character, uh, Billy Walker, I have to say, um, you've given her a tough life. <laughs> okay you're a little bit mean there so is this someone you know that uh, <laughs> because you know you know what the what was the father's dad and and her husband right at the beginning and the first and the war widow and then the husband's missing and it's just the wars just ended she has to take on the, her father's job type thing so you got all this stuff going on and Wow. I mean, okay. Well, let's just, you know. Yeah. Um, so I don't give her an, early, uh, an easy time, that's for sure. No, no. And, only, and, and I must say, too, probably even taking her father's job after a war of yeah. investigation was probably not something that was looked at too positively in society because private investigation is a man's job. Yeah. Right? Private investigation had a pretty bad rap, too. Not all of it undeserved, but a fair chunk of it undeserved. Um, because in that period, you know, the only way you could get a divorce was to have photographic evidence of adultery um, or abandonment, which was much harder to prove. So if there was something going on domestically that was pretty nasty, you actually required a private investigator. People didn't much like that association. You know, it gave them a bad rap that they were sneaking around looking for adulterers, but actually they were serving a very important civic function. Uh, on the other hand, there wasn't a, another way around that. So Billy Walker as a woman and taking on that kind of work, yeah, and you know, not the kind of person you want to necessarily like introduce to your mom or <laughs> invite, invite to your high-end party, right? <laughs> but she's got um, a really interesting mix of attributes because she was a reporter during World War II when she was in Paris, she was chasing Nazis across Europe during the war. And when the war was over, um, as we know, there was this real push to kind of say, thanks, ladies, for your time in the factories and the newsrooms. Uh, you can go back in the kitchen now. Yeah. Bye. You know, and, and really, there wasn't um, a friendly attitude towards women having paid work outside the home. There was a desire to make sure those jobs were available for returned soldiers. And there was also this wanting to return to a pre-war attitude about gender, I suppose. But a lot had changed. And for Billy, she doesn't have a husband to look after. She probably isn't that way inclined anyway. And she has all those amazing skills from being a reporter, and she wants to put them somewhere. So she um, restarts her late father's private investigation agency. And like you said, there's resistance, you know, socially. It's not easy for her. Well, you, you create your characters, obviously, but and you created Billy, but how much of you is in 
Billy. Oh, I have a, a bit of me probably in all my main heroines. Um, each one I've written has some kind of, I feel like we could all be part of the same girl gang, you know? We would, we would hang out at the bar and, and drink champagne cocktails together for sure. Uh, I, I love Billy, but I'm not her. And I think if I identified too closely with her, it would probably limit my ability to be mean to her. <laughs> you know, I'm not that um, masochistic. I, I, I couldn't imagine I was her and then do some of the things I have to. Um, I, I don't know what the, the quote is, but there is a beautiful quote out there about, you know, killing your darlings. In my case, I just, I'm just torture them a little bit um, with with difficulties of life. And, you know, life isn't always roses, right? It, it's true. Um, my life hasn't been easy in a lot of ways, but I still feel really lucky. And I think that Billy is, again, a woman who's really lucky, but she's had some pretty rough experiences too. She's had loss. She's had grief. And I think that it helps her to be better at her job. Um, it helps her to understand her clients maybe a little bit more. And kind of keeps us on our toes as readers, I think. You, you never quite know what's going to happen to her because you know that I'll go there. <laughs> With the whips and everything. Yeah, right. I mean, I don't I don't write cozies. I, I love some of the um, cozies out there. Like Iona Wishaw writes this wonderful series set in Nelson in the 40s. It's really clever. But it's very cozy by comparison. It's just a different style. I'll enjoy, you know, reading it. But when I'm writing, I'm... I like a lot of action and I like a lot of, um, you know, danger and, and darkness. And that just seems to be the way I roll. So <laughs> you can expect that when you pick up a Tara Moss book, right? It's not soft reading. Well, no, I mean, I'm sure there's aspects that are like, I, I hope there's a little bit of humor and there's a little bit of glamor and those other things that are, you know, could be called soft. They're, they're the fun, but then I'm also going to go there. And I'm also going to hopefully really make you feel and make you feel for the characters. And like you said, I'm going to be mean to them. Sorry. <laughs> you ever feel like you've gone too far? That just say, I, I just can't do that. I got to back off on that particular thing. There's, a, there's this really notable scene that comes to mind right now when you say that, Joe, because um, at the end of my, or towards the end of my contemporary crime series with Mac Vanderwall, there's this, horrifying scene with a oh I, I won't even there's a there's a beloved character that I kill and my main character rides the edge of ethics in a way that makes you not sure you like her anymore and I feel like in real life that would happen if you were in that situation you're talking about bad bad people like no holds barred bad bad people bad stuff going on you would do that to survive but I apparently wrote the baddies so well that people actually didn't like her doing what she did to them. So I heard about that a lot from readers. I wouldn't change it, but I, it might have been one of those times where I went too far. And um, you just got to go with your own judgment and think, what would you do in those circumstances? Would you do anything to survive? Well, yeah, probably. So uh, I made that call. And... Uh, yeah, there were some people who were pretty, why did you have to do that? I don't know. Just seems like the right call, can I say? <laughs> I think we all have that experience at some point. I did the same thing. It's really gruesome seeing guys trying to escape being kidnapped, basically. And 
I didn't know. I just said, what are you going to do to get out of this? You're going to do anything, absolutely anything to live. And don't tell me you won't. Yeah. But people focused on that because it's, oh, it's gross and gruesome. Yeah. Really? It's gross and gruesome, but out. then you're like, and look who they're yeah. doing it to and in what circumstances. Like, yeah. they're, they're, you, you can't talk your way out of this. Sometimes violence is necessary in these crime novels, you know. <laughs> Where's your first clue? We're going to go there, right? But, but yeah, no, I, I definitely have had um, circumstances where I wondered, like, oh, maybe I've taken it too far. But in general, as a writer, um, I have given myself license now to go there completely. And if I want to in the editing later, I can pull it back. And I had to be really strong with myself there because my self-doubt would get in the way otherwise. I would think, Oh, that's too much, uh, and I would never write it. It's, I found that 99% of the time, I'm not going hard enough. So I end up giving myself license to just go all the way, to, to go 110% and then find out that's totally out of balance, pull it back to 100, you know. But I, yeah, maybe on that occasion I went too far. You're explaining the confidence growth from 1999. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. Wouldn't have done that in 1999. That's right. That's exactly right. Here it comes. Get out of the way. First book, for sure. Um, and, you know, there's things I would change. Sure, I was in my 20s when I wrote the first one. I hope that I have matured and become certainly, you know, matured and become more seasoned in my way. And, yeah, you become more confident about certain things despite my... <laughs> You know, despite the ways in which I could be more confident generally, you, you do learn how to have a confident hand in your writing when you're doing it. You know, when you can sit down and go, okay, I'm really doing it. Um, you know, you know you've got license actually to go there. And that's, a, I think, a good moment in your career when you realize, I'm just going to go all the way and see. Uh, now, the book two, uh, The Ghosts of Paris. So this is um, a continuation with your... Uh, lead character there and Billy Walker. Um, so originally, when you when you were doing the very first book, did you have this in mind that this would be a series? This was someone that you wanted to take on quite a few different adventures with. I did. Um, I did, Al. I I wanted to write. I wanted to find a character to live with. Um, I tend to do series. It, it seems to be, I don't know, just, just my style. I never seem to get enough of my characters in one book. I want to keep exploring with them and keep pushing them and putting different obstacles in their paths. And for me, Billy Walker with The War Widow was a kind of launching uh, point for her. And that little, um, you know, the constellation of characters around her. And so the Ghosts of Paris was just beautiful to return to them and to be back in Billy's world. And right now for the next book, um, I won't give you the draft title because who knows, it'll probably change, but just being in her world again is wonderful and seeing the progression. So the Ghosts of Paris is set in 1947. The next one's set in 1948 that I'm writing at the moment and, and has Italy obviously in it. And for me, it's a great way to just Ah, oh, just feel into those characters, see what they're going to do, see what all of that background, that backstory is going to make them do when new things arise. Uh, I think that's one of the beautiful aspects of being a writer is creating the characters. And I guess I'm a very character-driven writer, so that's probably why I'm attracted to series. Yeah, that's interesting. So 
when you say you're the character driven writer, mm. so you you develop your character first usually. Is that true? Yeah. And yeah, and with Billy, she just arrived fully formed, but I know she was she was ba- she was like baking or, or stewing or whatever metaphor we're going to use in the background for years before she kind of arrived and said, "I'm here and ready to go." Well, how, so yeah, first. Well, so so how how do they come to you, or how do you see them? How do you um, interact with your main character like this? With Billy, she arrived quite fully formed, I think, because of um, the stories I've been hearing for decades, family stories, the the films, the film noir that I'm obsessed with. You know, she's like Philip Marlowe, if it was Ava Gardner, with a touch of, you know, it, it, she's got this wonderful combination of attributes I love and other things that are just new and specific to her and just uh, arrive spontaneously. What I find, though, is when I'm developing new characters, I can't even imagine a pre-Billy moment with this book. She arrives sort of before I started the series. With characters that I need to create while I'm writing the series, that's always a really tricky thing. They need I need to kind of think about them, research them, maybe even put a photo on my wall. And then some at some point in the writing, hopefully really soon, and it doesn't take too long, they start speaking. Once, once that happens, once they have a voice that just starts spilling out, I know I've got them. I've got that character now. They're, they're, they're real to me. Um, but it doesn't happen necessarily overnight. So when I'm creating a character, I'm trying to make that magic happen. And it will, they will arrive in the writing. After all the research and everything else in preparation, they still don't arrive until I'm writing them. Well, well, you mentioned, I'm going to ask a process question here. This is totally selfish as I'm stuck myself, so I'm hoping you can give me some guidance. You, you write short stories too, correct? Or I do. Well, how do you do. do all that character development and place, place as a character when you have 3,000 words, whatever your length is, versus 90,000 words? I'm stuck right now. So help me out here, Tara. I'm taking notes. I... I'm not a great person to ask that of, Joe, because I find short stories as hard as novels, and I shouldn't. Like, one is a much bigger project than the other, but they both still need characters and they need a story, and it needs to have that, I'm going to call it magic or spark or whatever. It has to, has to arrive. Um, so I'm actually not a great person to ask. I always feel like there's ways to do this work that's a lot more efficient, that's a lot more, you know, less painful. I never find those ways. The <laughs> twinsies them. here. Right. There we go. There we go. So I'm not sure that there's a, a special method. I have tried a lot of different um, process methods and to varying degrees of success, you know, the wall covered in all the post-it notes and the arrows and the, there you go you got your post-it notes i got you know a little bit here too you know i've got pictures as mood boards you know whatever i've tried different i haven't tried a lot of software but i do like scrivener the way you can kind of pop things in little side um uh side things in this in the one document you can have these little sections for characters and locations i don't really use it i just am pretty much it's up here 
um, it either it either arrives or it doesn't, and all the other work is just you know laying the foundations for that arrival, hoping hoping that all that research, all the things that are inspiring me and drawing me to the story, make it possible for that character or that scene to to just arrive and come to life, and pretty much it always does. It hap it always happens. I always fear that it won't, but it does. It arrives. I'm in the erotic phase rather than confident phase right now. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. yeah. I wrote that one yeah, down. Very, very familiar. Very familiar. Um, and I have to keep reminding myself, like, you know, you felt this way for all the other 14 books. Like, yeah. you know, come on. Yeah. If there's anything I've learned, it's that I can expect this feeling. Yeah. yeah. And that is. Yeah. It's kind of like you're going for a, you know, uh, a, a medical test, and you just know what to expect. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm like, this is this won't be fun, but I know what's going to happen. Like, yeah, yeah. And then and then something good will come of it. And and uh, for me, it'll be that beautiful scene that arrives, and I'll just know. And I don't know how I know, but it's all those clues, all those foundations, all of it is important to the work. You're just waiting for the arrival to happen. Yeah. So, Joe, it's like going for a colonoscopy. <laughs> yeah, it's not the test, it's the results you worry about. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's the feedback and the reviews. You can have yeah. to drink that juice and then, you know. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Fine. I used to, I've done that before, but it's, it's when I, I'm talking to the doctor, he goes, I got to talk to you. Oh, no, it's a bad review. Oh, it's feedback. Oh, my gosh, the quick results are in. Yeah. That's what I worry about. Yeah. I worry about that reader. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, you know, uh, Tara, so in this series here that you got going on with these two books here, um, it's quite, it's quite kind of a deep subject in a sense, because we are still talking about the war and, and Nazis and, and there's still some heavy, heavy ideas here for people. Yeah. Um, do, do you, do you actually have a subtext? or a point or, or, you know, when someone picks up these books and reads them, of course, there's, there's all of the, you know, uh, drama and things that go on with the story, but do you have something underlying that you really want a reader to take away from your books? That's a good question. I, I try to avoid that. I guess I try to avoid having a message but I also know that my perspective is influenced by, you know, a couple of decades as a human rights advocate. So I'm hoping that I use my experience being close to front lines or with refugees and with displaced kids and things, that I'm using those perspectives to kind of make the humans more human in the book. I think the social justice elements, I mean, they have been written about by reviewers before, and I, you know, I like that and I accept that, but I'm also quite careful. I try to just make the story what the story is, I guess is what I'm saying. I, I try not to, um, it, it's not a moral story. You know, characters do things they're not supposed to do. We're all complicated. I'm complicated. It's just got to be about, it's got to be about um, life. It's a slice of life, I guess. 
Um, but I'm also aware that those social justice elements inevitably come through. And I find some of those facts just really interesting. So the history is fun. Like there's a scene in The Ghost of Paris, for example, um, where she comes into the Paris Ritz Hotel. She's wearing silk trousers and they tell her she's, you know, she's not allowed to do that because trousers are, are illegal in Paris in 1947. <laughs> you know, it's insane. But, it, uh, um, you know, it, that was the case at the time and until fairly recently, in fact. And that's a really interesting slice of history, just the fact that you can have all this sort of... Um, you know, they've had a war, much more important things going on, and they're still going to have this quibble over, like, I don't know, she's wearing silk trousers, like, that's illegal. You needed a police permit to do that, right? So so actually just dropping those little things in, um, I just think makes it richer, and I try not to make the story about those things, but they're still part of the world that the characters are inhabiting. So that's, you know, whether I succeed in that or not, is not for me to say, but my attempt is to just make the best story I can and to make it feel like, you know, you're getting a perspective that maybe you might not get if it's it's not my novel. You're just going to see things through a slightly different lens. But that's important. I think that that's, um, it's more of an organic mm. subtext in a sense. It just comes from from things like that, like what you just described is something that if someone is thinking beyond the story, they'll realize that a woman can't buy silk trousers for, you know, like you just sort of, you start to put it together and, and hopefully, and I think organically it's better than being preached to, right? So. Well, that's it. I want to avoid the preaching, but I also want to use the, use the realities, and I'm going to emphasize that realities that are not necessarily a normal part of the fiction of the time. Like for example, writing a, a female PI is not making stuff up because they existed. There were female PIs, she's in Sydney, there were others that were operating at the time. We just literally haven't read about them. They weren't the norm, but they existed and they needed to, you know, put food on their table. When I look at the contemporary fiction of the time, of course, it's all male uh, detectives, um, PIs, private detectives. The only exception that I've personally found, and I'd love your listeners to tell me if they know of any as well, is a 1940s like contemporary published at the time series by Gail Gallagher um, with a, a character called Gail Gallagher in the book. Gail Gallagher was actually, it was a husband and wife team who wrote under that nom de plume they wrote a female PI in the U.S. in the 40s that was published in the 40s. I have not found anything else, even though I've found a lot of evidence of PIs who are women at that time. So writing a female PI, it's not like, oh, she's really, you know, making a statement. It's actually that I'm writing something with just that slightly different perspective. I'm looking at reality, if you will, um, through a slightly different lens that maybe makes it more, I don't know, it's just kind of, a little more unexpected or it's showing you a side that you hadn't thought of before perhaps and being a fan of the genre it's for me more refreshing because i'm pretty familiar with the other great classics and i love them and i want to do something that's maybe a little bit different but still uh tips the hat yeah yeah no i think it's great it's good um okay so how do people find you? Like, do you, do you uh, interact a lot on social media? Do you have a website? Do you have, uh, 
where do they find Tara? I do. Thank you. Um, I'm at TaraMoss.com, but you can find me on Instagram, TaraMossAuthor, and Facebook, TaraMossAuthor. I'm quite active and happy to interact. Um, always love hearing from readers. I love hearing, you know, what people are reading at the moment, what they're loving, and if they've read my books, what they liked, what they didn't like. I want to hear all of it. And I've also, you know, it's been a great source of inspiration as well because people will send me cool articles about the 1940s and things happening at the time or family stories. I find it really rewarding. Um, so the Ghost of Paris is the latest one. It's out now. The War Widow is the first in that series. And you don't have to read them in order. You can just, if you enjoy it, uh, read more of Billy Walker. And I've got a new short story out in uh, Black is the Night, uh, the Cornell Woolrich tribute in anthology. The story is called The Husband Machine. It's pretty dark. Um, <laughs> and it's a play on Rear Window. Oh. Uh, the movie you'd all be familiar with that was based oh, yeah. on a short story. So, yeah, there's a few things out there. I hope people enjoy it, and I, I'd love to hear from from them. I'm sure it sounds really fascinating. It's been uh, you should you know, you know I was uh, going through your history too. You did the documentary series Tough Nuts. <laughs> <laughs> it sound it sounds like you should write something on that. Yeah, I would love to. The um, Tough Nuts, Australia's Hardest Criminals. Funny title. I didn't choose it, but... No, it's something that it sounds like something I would write. <laughs> it's cool, right? I love exactly. Tough Nuts. Yeah. Um, we did two seasons of that, and it was just so fascinating. So I'm a real... Um, I'm a fiction writer, but a documentary lover. Um, I did a true crime podcast, The Man in the Balaclava, as well, about a series of pretty harrowing... Um, murders and sexual assaults in Australia that are unsolved. Uh, so I, I really do love true crime and real life and, and history. And I guess I funnel it all into my, my fiction books. So it depends on what you like. You can, uh, you can find me in a few different flavors. Yeah. <laughs> I left, I, when I left Australia, I left my Bali Clava there. So. Oh, you did? Okay. So, you know, <laughs> I got no chance of... of no no know. chance. My flavor's, my flavor's vanilla. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, you know, you're... A, Not even French vanilla. French vanilla, yeah. French vanilla, some, that's pretty good. Yeah. Oh, and I was going to say, well, at least in your fiction, you get to uh, decide who's going who's gonna to pay for the crime. Oh, you know it's, I mean? that's nice. I do like... Um, I don't know if I'll call my work poetic, but that poetic justice is... Um, it's one yeah. of the perks of being a fiction writer, isn't it? And, of course, things in real life, they're never so neatly tied up. Uh, no. no. And that, I think, works for a series, too, that you're not going to come to the end of one of my books and go, oh, look at the pretty bow on the end of it. Everybody's fine. Everything's done. It's all solved. There's going to be aspects that um, carry over because life just isn't doesn't fit in a box, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> Well, I've certainly enjoyed. This has been a great conversation, and we really loved having you on here. And uh, we could talk for hours, I think. There's so much <laughs> to get into, especially I want to get into the tough nuts. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll, uh, I'll send you some nuts <laughs> if you don't have them. Uh, there is some the Razor Wars, the Razor Gang Wars in the 1920s in Sydney. If you don't know about those, you will enjoy uh, dipping a toe in. It's pretty fascinating history. And, and, yeah. uh, and dark. It gets dark. It was such a pleasure to speak with you both. Thank you, Alan and Joe. And um, 
thanks to all the listeners as well. And yeah, keep, keep reading, keep writing and um, I'll see you out there. I hope. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Our thank guest you. has thank been the, the one and only, the one and only Tara Moss. So thank you for being here. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Bye.